Hi there, and welcome to the Android Bytes podcast, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick, and every week with my co-host Michelle Rahman, we're diving deep on the topics, trends, and news shaping the Android industry. We're also joined each week by influential members of the Android space, from developers to journalists to the people behind the company's building products that rely on Android to achieve success. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you have any feedback, please reach out to us at editors at esper.io or shoot any of us a DM on Twitter. This week, I wanted to talk a bit about a topic that many people do not know about because it involves underlying hardware that doesn't run an operating system you're probably familiar with, and it involves APIs that are not generally accessible to third-party developers. But I do have a third-party developer here who has been trying to basically hack his way into accessing those APIs. I'd like to welcome to the show Kieran Quinn, who is a developer with a company in the UK, and he's also a well-known third-party app developer on the XDA forums and online who basically tries to hack his way into getting Google's applications working on any device in any way he can. So welcome to the show, Kieran. Thank you very much. Yep. Like like you say, it is pretty much what I intend to do, get as many things working on as many devices as possible. And tap, tap, like you say, is no exception to that rule. Yeah. And so for, for background here, what we're talking about, this obscure thing is the Android this has a name that I'm going to have to look up because I've just forgotten it. The uh, the context hub. So this is like if you if you want if you have some computing background, like this is a like this is a chip on most smartphones. It usually manifests in the form of a dedicated little part of the DSP digital signal processor, and is branded variously by companies like Qualcomm and MediaTek and Google and Samsung. And so it runs a tiny little real time operating system. Very, very lightweight, designed to be extremely low power usage. And Android, you know, has had support for this for a while, but usage and adoption of it is kind of limited. And I think that's part of what we'll get into today. But maybe we should uh, really start by explaining what this hub can do. Right. So to step back a bit, you know, your slab rectangular Android smartphone is filled to the brim with a plethora of sensors. For example, any modern flagship phone will include sensors like an accelerometer, a gyroscope, an ambient light sensor, a proximity sensor, and so on. And most of these sensors do exactly what their names say they do. They measure the acceleration in the case of the accelerometer, the magnetic field in case of a magnetometer, the ambient light in the case of an ambient light sensor. And so, you know, these these basic sensors, you'll find them pretty pretty much every smartphone. A few low-end smartphones might lack one sensor here or there, but in flagships, you'll find almost all of these sensors. And uh, because there are so many sensors and there's so little room to put them in into a smartphone package, a lot of vendors, what they do is they pack these physical sensors together into a single package. So for example, an IMU chip, that's an inertial, sorry, I forgot the acronym stands for, but it combines an accelerometer and a gyroscope into a single chip. On the software side, Android can combine these sensors, not physically, but um, in software to create what's called a composite sensor that basically collects data from two or more sensors and fuses them together to where it can detect certain functions. So for example, there's a rotation vector composite sensor, which combines data from an accelerometer, magnetometer, and a gyroscope. 
basic sensors themselves, like the accelerometer, can also do multiple things. They don't have to be combined with another sensor to be useful. The accelerometer, for example, it could be used for basic step counter detection, or it can also be used for significant motion detection. So for example, like if you were to start running or going on a bike, it could detect um, that you're act doing those activities, or it could also be used to detect if you're just basically walking. So it has uh, a lot of sensitivity there. So there's all sorts of sensors you can find on a modern smartphone, but I wanted to know from you guys, are there any sensors that you wish were packed into more smartphones these days? Samsung, for example, used to have a heart rate sensor in their flagship Galaxy S series, but they stopped including them with the Galaxy S10 launch. Do you think more smartphones should have dedicated health sensors like that? Or do you think another approach is more suitable? I like the idea of having heart rate sensor in the phone, but I do question how much they're really required anymore because of the plethora of smartwatches that have the same sensor in them and the, the many, many health apps that are associated with that, even the really cheap smartphones nowadays have sensors in them. In terms of having a dedicated one, as opposed to using the camera system, it is a, it's a nice to have, but you do, you do have to then consider where would you put it? So yeah, on the back of the phone, they used to be sometimes integrated into fingerprint sensors, so that made sense. It's where you, your fingerprint usually was, but if you can do it with a camera and if the phone is set up in such a way, I have used a very similar API with an app at work that I won't go into that used the camera and then the flashlights in order to detect the heart rate. And one of the problems we had is that uh, various different phones have the flashlight in different positions. And then phones these days have so many different cameras on them and in different arrays that you have to have your finger in a very specific position. So it would have been really nice if we could say, well, it works on these long list of Samsung smartphones that still included them after the S10, but obviously they dropped them. And we ended up just looking down the route of, well, can we integrate it into watches or anything like that? We never got that far, but that is uh, one of the things that we, we preferred to do. So handing off this idea of, of doing heart rate sensors to the watch is probably a better way of doing it nowadays with them being a kind of dedicated health system. But other sensors, I don't know. I'll open it out to you guys as well. I think that if I were to choose a sensor to make more common on a phone and only one phone ever did it, it would be radar solely on the Pixel 4. While it was very limited in what it could do, the, the possibilities of that system were really intriguing. And I think that you could implement that kind of technology across a wide variety of form factors. And that's something we've seen because Google is trying to genericize solely to be used in other applications by other businesses. And you probably see solely popping up in things like, uh, what is the, the Google telepresence project Starlink? Not Starlink. That's Elon Musk. Um, I'm, I think I'm you're totally close. I think it's Starline. Starline. That's what it is. It's Starline. So when I look at something like radar, I think that holds a lot of a lot of promise because it allows your device to see in a totally different way, and also to do so like in a way that can recognize motion in a very fine grain kind of manner. So maybe not a phone necessarily is the best use case for that. But something that's stationary, where someone's sitting there or standing there, and that radar can determine an intent, basically, potentially using, you know, this low, this low power sensor hub as part of like a wake series of commands, basically, where like there's a basic presence detection that trips a low power sensor and that wakes up the radar system. So, yeah, I, I think that radar is one that I'm, I'm really intrigued by personally. Yeah. And... 
Google only included the Soli radar sensor in a single smartphone series, the Pixel 4. But before the Pixel 4 launch, they actually, in their patent applications, they showed off various videos that showed Soli radars inside a wearable. But we haven't seen that use case emerge yet. We have seen them equip their second generation Nest Hub smart displays with Soli radar. And I believe they use that for in, in conjunction with the sleep detection feature. But yes, that would be a fascinating example to see more deployment of. So um, speaking of underutilized sensors, you know, there's a lot of sensors that have been around for a long time and intelligent use cases of these sensors goes pretty far back to the early days of Android. In fact, I think I'd say it's one of the key ways that one of the biggest smartphone makers, Motorola, used to differentiate its smartphones from the competition. If you'll recall, way back in the day, the company had a suite of actions called Moto Actions that would let you do things like turning the flashlight on and off with a chopping motion, like basically raising your hand and like moving it up and down quickly. They used to call that chop chop. And I think that I remember seeing a lot of commercials about that too. It was a pretty popular gesture. They had other gestures like launching the camera up, twisting your wrist or like putting your phone face down to silence calls. These features aren't really all that special nowadays because, well, they've basically been copied all over, but uh, they weren't common to find way back then. Personally, I think a lot of these motion-based gestures are kind of silly because I don't really see myself waving my hand around to do things with my phone. But what do you both think? Did you find any of these gestures particularly useful? I can't say I've ever used the camera one either. <laughs> I much, I much, I much prefer the, the the double tap and triple tap, the the more recent integration equivalent for it, especially with Snapchat. But I can see a lot of people using the face down to, to silence, face down to turn the screen up, especially if you don't have an ambient display. So yeah, I, I can see their use personally. Not a huge fan of, of, of the strange gestures either. They, they look great on paper and they probably look great in commercials and, and to board members, but yeah, I don't think a lot of people will be using that kind of thing in their daily life, to be honest. And I, I think that's right, that they demo really well. And the Chop Chop, Michelle, you are, that was in, literally in commercials, <laughs> the Moto Chop. They, they really marketed that. What's interesting to me is that we never saw this really take off much with wearables. And Kieran, maybe know a little bit about this, but like, I, I always assumed this was a data noise issue where the wearable is getting so much accelerometer and gyro data that turt like finding an action that could consistently be recognized with accuracy would be a real challenge. I'd imagine that is probably the case you're right there, but wearables also have the, the unique or the more unique type of thing where they have a much smaller battery as well. So even if you do have a low power CPU, you still have to be considered, consider the battery aspect of it. And I'm not sure, I don't know if um, any you guys know, um, whether the old wearable chips actually even had these lower power CPUs in them. That might be a, an open question. Do you know whether they did or not? That I don't know. Michelle, do you have any insight? I know that over time, these wearable chips have been adding more and more low power subsystems and components. But I think that is one of the biggest differentiators between the wearable chipsets and the chipsets for bigger devices like smartphones is that wearable chipsets don't have enough of the low power, like machine learning cores, for example, to offload a lot of that processing to. 
which is why you can see things like super low power, efficient voice processing on smartphone devices, but not on like wearables. That's, you know, it is a good point. The power envelope there is so much tighter. You do have to be very judicious with it. And I do wonder if even Wear OS would make something like that really practical for a developer. But that kind of gets into, you know, what can you do with these sensors, especially in the context of like a smartphone where these are really becoming very, very complex systems. Yeah. So over the years, you know, we've seen um, mobile SOCs become incredibly powerful, but we've also seen uh, um, behind the scenes, these sensors, they've become incredibly more advanced. The data they're able to process is much more fine-grained. Smartphones themselves have been getting, getting bigger so that they can pack more and more sensors inside of them. And as I mentioned before, machine learning is, you know, something that's really taken off in the recent years. Because of all of these innovations, we've seen software companies use sensor data in really innovative ways, ways that we've never really considered were possible many years ago. So I'd like to pose a question to both of you. What, in your view, has been the most impressive feature to come out of sensor application? I think car crash detection is quite, quite a big one, but also just, just in, in general use of sensor data for me, it's, it's, it's gotta be the, the now playing feature on pixels. Cause that is, even if it doesn't go through this low power stuff as such, or at least I'm not aware if it does completely. The fact that they have managed to get that to work offline and with such a big database is, it's just insane to me. I've looked at all the stuff behind it. And I still, still boggle the mind when you look at it and it just works. Like you, you barely have a song playing in the distance and it will recognize it sometimes. So that always listening capability, I think is the top for me. I think I'd have to agree aside from car crash detection, which I mean, we have it in the outline here, so I think we're all being drawn to it because it is very cool. But the music detection feature is obviously an evolution of hot word detection, which became table stakes on smartphones in the last six years, I guess, about that's how, about how that long that's been around, something like that. So I do think that that feature is a great example of the convergence of machine learning and AI and then using these ultra low power kind of sensor hubs to, you know, take a very, what is really a very weak data signal, right? You are taking one piece of input and you are then feeding that into this massive data set and coming out with, and you know, something actionable for the user. So that's in that sense, I do think that the, the music detection feature is more impressive than car crash detection because you are doing something with like so little context. That's what's impressive about it. The car crash detection feature, which Michelle, you can explain a little bit how that works, really is impressive because it's able to fuse data from multiple sources into an event. Yeah, car crash detection, you know, it's like David said, fuses data from multiple sensors, including a gyroscope, accelerometer, and a microphone. And basically because, you know, it's such a life-saving event, it needs to be processing data continuously from all these sensors because, you know, it can't miss a single beat. It can't, it can't miss a car crash event. That would be catastrophic, potentially devast life devastating to the user. And uh, not as, you know, detrimental to the user, but the now playing feature that Kieran mentioned, you know, that needs to continuously process microphone data in the background. 
because it needs to pick up on audio cues and match that with a fingerprint from a, from a database that's stored on device. And because of this continuous processing requirement for the microphone for now playing and the continuous requirement for the gyroscope accelerometer and microphone for the car crash detection, you know, companies like Google that are making devices with limited batteries in a smartphone, you know, they have to consider how do we implement these features without destroying the battery life on a device. And, you know, if you were to keep the main applications processor on a device such as the Google Tensor chip in the Pixel 6 awake at all times in order to process that data, it probably destroy the battery life. So instead, the solution is to not do that. Don't wake the applications processor at all times. Instead, use something else, something much more low powered, something called a sensor hub, which is what David alluded to in, in the beginning of this episode. Sensor hub, which is also called a context hub in other contexts, is a low power processor that exists solely to process data from sensors and then wake the main applications processor whenever something needs to be done. We've seen sensor hubs used in devices going back all the way to the Motorola example. They've, they use a sensor hub that's apparently a ARM-powered microcontroller. Sensor hubs can also exist on the die itself in the form of an island that runs its own operating system. You'll find it on Qualcomm chips. They have what's called an SLPI or a sensor low power island which is uh, part of the Hexagon DSP. Google devices have also had sensor hubs since the days of the Nexus 5X and 6P. And of course, their latest smartphones also include a sensor hub, which they call an always-on compute island. So the challenge with implementing a sensor hub is that it's a different kind of platform. The software running on it is very different. It's not Android. Most of the times, as, Go as David mentioned earlier, it's a real-time operating system. And many sensor hubs often run different operating systems. You'll have solutions like Free RTOS or Zephyr OS, and then you'll have proprietary ones, such as the ones that many silicon vendors. Because of this variability in the software platforms on sensor hubs, Google decided to create a standardized framework called the Context Hub Runtime Environment, which is a software environment to execute small native applications written in C or C++. These native apps, which are called nano apps because they are small and they are native, only do basically three things. They start collecting data, they stop collecting data, and they handle events. And under the CIHRE API, Android is able to interface with these nano apps. So that's a whole bunch of context. And I'd like to ask Kieran now, a question about his research into nano apps because he's been looking into these nano apps and context hubs, et cetera, while he was digging into how the Pixel 6's backtap feature works. So Kieran, can you tell us a bit about the Pixel 6's backtap feature, otherwise known as QuickTap, as well as your research into how it makes use of context hubs and the nano applications? Yeah, so a little bit of background, the feature uses accelerometer and gyroscope data and basically just feeds that into machine learning algorithm to, to figure out whether the user is tapped on the back of the device once and then does that within a certain period of time to detect whether they've done it as a double tap. That's as far as the future goes on pixel devices. 
previously, uh, when we'd seen it in Android 11, it was done entirely in app. So it was all visible code, except obviously the machine learning algorithm, which is through TensorFlow. So that was very high power. And that is previously what people were using in the original versions of TapSap. And that's what was draining the battery for a lot of people. Even if you ran it on a device that uh, offloaded some of the processing of TensorFlow stuff onto low power CPUs, it was still having the processor online all the time. And therefore you're draining a lot of your battery. But in Android 12, we saw the feature disappeared from the code, from the, the app code, but still worked. So I looked further into it and then discovered that actually there is now a nano app called Columbus, Columbus being the name of the feature in term at Google, which does all of the processing of the gyroscope accelerometer data and also the time-based data and just emits these events for a double tap. The way that TapTap interfaces with this is a little bit of a hack. So already, as well as the permissions framework, you have to get around the fact that uh, the nano app is emitting just the double tap event, which is great if you only want double tap, but tap tap always said triple tap. So the way I get around that is it also emit events for logging purposes for when a single tap happens. So I then do the, the triple tap detection in, in the app itself. So that does use a little bit more power, but it's still tapping into the, the low power ability of the, of these nano apps. Unfortunately, and something that people have asked me a lot, they aren't portable because you can't build them without having the source code and they are very specific. They are specific to device and in some cases firmware. So you can't just take one that's been built on the, on pixel six and then chuck it on a one plus phone and hope it will work because it, it doesn't, even if the one plus phone had a context hub available, which, which it doesn't. So no, it can't be ported, but yes, it is a great feature to use if it is available. There are also other nano apps available. So as well as Columbus, there is also one for detecting like ambient background stuff. So just noise levels, that sort of thing, which I think feeds into activity recognition on, on, on Google maps and that sort of thing, which is itself an extra nano app. Something that Michelle didn't mention is that they are quite modular. So one app will use another app to, to do some of its recognition and share code across them. So you've got one for activity. There's the car crash one, obviously, which, which takes in a, a lot of data and then emits all of this information of, of when a car crash happens, but it's extremely specific. It has to ha it has to pass a lot of checks because obviously arguably a, a, a number of false positives will be worse in terms of PR, hopefully not for the person, but it'd be worse in terms of PR, not triggering at all, because that might be recoverable. But if you end up with the feature having to be disabled because you, you get in bad state with the authorities, then that's, that's much, much worse for PR. So they've been very careful with that one. Interestingly, there's also things like geofencing. So if you're not aware of geofencing, what that is, it is basically the device has an app on it that says, I want to be notified when the device was in this location. So it's using things like Google pay when you go into a store to recommend you, your, um, your, your cards and that sort of thing. That that needs to be done low power because you don't want the, the CPU to be on all the time. That's um, processing all of the location data. So that that's done with low power CPU as well. But we've, we've also found that there's, there's strange ones like calibration stuff for uh, sensors. So there's, there's obviously a lot of stuff going on in the background that Google are trying to optimize to, to stop it from draining the battery, making use of their, their tensor CPU, which probably has a lot of processing for this sort of thing compared to maybe some other CPUs. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of nano apps that 
you don't even know what's happening behind the scenes because it, it's completely transparent to the user. It's super interesting platform to look at. And it's just a bit of a shame that it's opened up to more developers, which we'll be going into in a moment, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think maybe we we could skip ahead here to really why certain device makers are using this and why they aren't, because that seems to be the bigger issue is that CHRE, Google's framework for for using this these hubs, has very low adoption. Kiran, why do you think that is? So partially due to what I've just said, where use it as a third party developer, so there is less incentive for them to put it in their devices because there aren't like loads of apps using it. So like, oh, this doesn't work on a Samsung phone. It is literally the case that if, if Samsung came along and said, we want to implement the CHRE, chances are they've actually already got another framework somewhere in the system that is doing the same thing for their apps. So there is little incentive for them to integrate the standard if it's not being used by lots of third-party systems. I'm not sure how it works for their kind of, uh, like GeoPens, like I was just saying, and activity tracking, whether they run on a different framework on Samsung phones or on other OEMs that have different processes implemented, or whether they simply run on the CPU and use more battery. I don't know, but that, that will be interesting to find out because that will probably be one of the big reasons why it's not been implemented. Other than that, it's probably also due to um, lack of resources. So a smaller OEM may not have the resource or the ability from their developers to implement this sort of thing. It's very, very low level. When you look at some of the, how it interacts with the system, it's, I, I, I think it's, I think from the presentation of the source, it was running in C++, so it's while the platform itself can be interacted within Java, you need a C++ developer to be able to do that as well. So that's a slightly different platform than, than most of Android. It's obviously a bit from the kernel level, but OEMs may not have the, the capacity for that sort of thing. Yeah. I think those two reasons probably combine for on the whole, that's probably why they're not doing it. So I'd like to bring up one major downside to the fact that many OEMs apart from Google haven't implemented CHRE. And it's the fact that as Kieran alluded to, alluded to earlier, some Google applications make use of the framework. They have nano apps for things like activity recognition or geofencing. And those Google applications are actually found on pretty much every Android device. Google Play Services, for example, implements activity recognition as an API that other devices can subscribe to. So if you're looking to detect, say, when a user is walking or biking or running, you could use Google Play's, the Google Play Services Activity API to basically implement those into your, app, into your application. But because very few devices support CHRE or have nano apps that Google Play Services can run, except for on Pixel devices, only Pixel devices will be able to have that activity recognition be incredibly power efficient and running continuously in the background. Kieran, what do you think about that? Do you think it's something that... Um, like, what do you think about this situation? Well, cause I, I think, I think it's, it's a shame that it's, it's not been implemented on, on other devices. It is possible for a device, uh, for a, sorry, for an application to load a, a nano app at runtime. That is a possibility, but it has to be able to be interact with it. So it needs certain permissions and it needs to be signed by the system. And also nano apps have their own security layer. So they need to be signed with a certain certificate in order to be able to, to do certain things. So it's possible that if, if OEM support was better, that 
they would be able to implement more of these things properly. But it, it does just look back to this whole idea that there has been little incentive for them to do it, at least on what shows to the user, especially if they have their own system to do it. Play services is a complete black box with no idea how most of it works. So there is, there's a decent possibility that in there somewhere there is the equivalent of this, that is processing on, I don't know, the Hexcon CPU or Qualcomm CPUs or similar things on, on Samsung devices that have their own implementation. So on that level, there may, there may be things that we aren't aware of that are alternatives to this. Sure. And that makes sense because when you're talking about, especially anything that's getting ML models involved too, you're going to have different ML blocks across chipset vendors. You're going to have different implementations across generations of silicon because it's still evolving pretty rapidly. And so probably a lot of these more sophisticated um, use cases like Google's music scanning require, obviously, like you've said, Kiran, they require a very narrowly tailored nano app that is very specific to the use case and is only really going to be useful to the one device being targeted. So having a broadly accessible platform for building on this hub or this, con this contextual hub probably, like you said, doesn't have much appeal to the vendors because they're already using the tools they want to use and the frameworks they want to use. But I do think that still there's, there's a whole lot of potential here in terms of what the CRHE can do and what it can see. And Michelle, there's a, you have a great list here of kind of the stuff it can gather up, a lot of which I don't think is even being used by anyone, right? Yeah. So looking at the documentation, the CHRE implementation actually supports multiple sensors, including the basic ones like the accelerometer, gyroscope, ambient light sensor, proximity sensor. And it also has APIs to request location data, scan for Wi-Fi networks, get cellular ID information, and process uh, batches of data from a microphone. So I think that's probably the big one. We probably haven't seen many use cases from the audio data processing. Google does have a few audio related features that seem to make use of this, such as the now playing feature. But as Kieran mentioned, it doesn't, doesn't look like now playing actually has a nano app from what we can tell, but yeah, there's clearly a lot that can be done with this framework and sensor hubs in general, but I wanted to ask both of you, what do you think would be the next big feature to make use of a sensor hub? If it was I mean, now, go on. Oh, no, go ahead, Kieran. <laughs> I was just saying, if, if it was opened out for third-party developers, it would be sleep tracking apps because they process audio data, movement data, especially if the device had a, a radar sensor on it, as well as, I don't know, I, I think some of them re recommend you put it, you, you put your put phone physically next to you. So they'll probably also use gyroscope and accelerometer data. So something like that would be nice to have a nano app that exposed some data to an app on the system. So that, that would be a nice feature to have, which when that you'd have to market it to users as a health feature, probably. But other than that, it's hard to tell until they come out with something because the, the, all of the ideas that have used nano apps so far, then and now, now play gesture stuff that they've before that they've always been, oh, it'd be a nice feature, but it uses internet or it uses too much power. So until the OEMs come up with these ideas and you think, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. It's, it's hard to 
think ahead of time what they are going to be. I think that one for me, and this is something that Google experimented with for a long time with, uh, with smart lock was the pocket detection mode for phones, which I don't think still exists. Michelle, is that, is that still work? That was deprecated a while ago. I thought like basically yeah, I think it's like it's in your, yeah, it's text in your pocket. I'm not sure if it's still, I think smart lock removed a lot of the like unlocking abilities, like you can still have your device unlocked if it's connected to your Bluetooth smartwatch, but I don't know about anything else. Right. So I think that I could see a future for the CHRE being able to do some some fusion with kind of basically a a lower level of trust around personal authentication. So not quite biometrics, but something that helps the phone realize, okay, I'm in your pocket, you know, like I know how you walk. I know how you sound. I know like if you've left a place and use that to provide some more trust for like, you know, seeing content without explicit unlocking. Because on Android, we're seeing that, you know, facial ID is either too expensive or too form factor compromising for a lot of the OEMs to adopt. Even Google got rid of it. And fingerprint scanners are quite spoofable. So I, I could see some security stuff going on there. And I imagine Google's probably already doing some of this with like deciding when the device needs to be unlocked manually. I like the idea of walking detection because everybody walks slightly differently. Yeah. I would be really interested to see what the sensor data would look like there because Google also, I, I remember, no, this was Qualcomm. I heard years ago, they said that if you have a good, good enough radar system, you can actually identify somebody's radar signature because everybody's radar signature is a little bit different. And so they had a proof of concept where they had radar Wi-Fi points deployed throughout a home and they could tell who was in what room. So that's less of a low power issue because these are stationary devices, but you could see a mobility case for something like that potentially. Yeah. And speaking of walking uh, detection, actually, the d digital well-being application on that's developed by Google, they actually have like a feature called Heads Up that detects when you're walking and using your phone at the same time and like tries to warn you just cut it out because you know that's dangerous and yeah. that's I, that's an example of a feature that i never would have thought of to implement before and i'm sure processing data in a sensor hub the um, accelerometer data to detect footsteps would be very power efficient and allow that application that feature to be continuously monitoring for you know heads up moments yeah, what I was, what was going to say as well is if, so you walk in detection, you could use for accessibility purposes as well. So if, if you're walking around a space that somebody isn't familiar with and the partially sighted, then you could use it to vibrate if there is something unexpected in front of them, say. That would take a lot of sensor data, but with things like radar and accelerometer and, and that sort of thing, it's, it's a possibility, I would imagine. So basically your, your phone would become your navigation system somebody to get around that might be done in the future yeah and i think that's where we're going to probably conclude here is getting into okay well the chre we've talked about smartphones we've talked about what it looks like in you know some consumer implementations we've seen but in our world when we're thinking about like dedicated devices and enterprise and business and industry Sensors are really commonly in use in all of these cases. 
especially in places like factory floors. So for example, on a factory floor, you have tons and tons of wireless devices these days, often communicating over Bluetooth low energy or Wi-Fi. You know, not necessarily very sophisticated, but there is a lot of wireless activity. There are a lot of computers, you know, crunching a lot of data. And so imagine an environment like a factory, if you have people walking around and if, for example, if you use low power geofencing to detect like, hey, you're entering a hard hat only zone, your watch is going to vibrate and say, hey, are you wearing the right safety equipment right now? Or even go so far as say, hey, you're entering a restricted zone you're not authorized to be here. It could also be something like Apple's fall detection on the Apple Watch. So if you have a safety incident at a workplace, um, if the wearable can tell you, hey, you have an employee who probably fell down, that can help you respond much more quickly to an incident, call paramedics, get somebody on site if that's necessary. So there are a lot of ways you could be using something like this and probably that aren't necessarily like sophisticated from a sensor data standpoint, especially in a really controlled setting, like a factory floor, like an office building, or like, you know, what's another location like a hotel or a restaurant where the context is relatively fixed and most of the computing assets are fixed too. So it could be that you have employees wearing the device. It could be that you have employees using a handheld. One example that we've already seen and that Apple is probably the most famous for doing on the consumer side, not that they were the first, is using like super high frequency millimeter wave to do basically echolocation of things like AirTags or your Apple Watch. So these things are, you know, they're becoming more and more common. Devices are emitting more and more types of signals and looking for more and more types of signals. So it only tracks that we're going to come up with ways to fuse that data usefully. So it's hard for me to imagine a future in which this doesn't start to get more attention. Maybe not as the CHRE. I can't really speak to the viability of that as a platform or why it appeals specifically. But as a overall concept, I don't see sensor data becoming less important. I see it becoming way more important in more and more use cases and contexts. Yeah, I think just touching on, on the idea of location data as well. The fact that in the last two years, the idea of precise location tracking from a wearable device or a handheld device using things other than high power GPS, that is going to feed into this as well. So we've got a lot of Bluetooth tracking research that's been done for COVID symptom tracking and, and tracing that sort of thing. So that has, I know from experience that I won't go into it, has fed into little wearable devices that do this sort of thing that are able to track somebody's location on the factory floor that are using systems other than GPS or other than Wi-Fi in sensitive areas that, that some things aren't allowed or that you're not allowed your personal phone on you or that sort of thing. So all this data and all of the new research that's been done the last two years may cause a huge increase of of this sort of thing in the next few years. So it'd be very interesting to see the direction that this. And I guess, um, before we wrap up, you know, maybe one more thing to think about in that context of why, why Android makes sense as the platform for this is the, the power efficiency that we were talking about earlier. And that I think is why the wearable and mobility use case, like these are new for a lot of these businesses and industries. And so they're just starting to learn 
how this stuff can be used to gather data and, you know, meaningfully improve processes or employee safety or whatever their goal may be. So you have tons of companies coming now over from Windows machines and who are trying to use, like, trying to learn this mobility landscape. And Android is kind of like, you know, CHRE may not be very well known at all in the enterprise world at this point. But the fact that Android has that extensibility built in at the OEM level, undoubtedly there will be exploration there. And because I don't think that, could you build this on iOS? Could you build this on Windows? Almost definitely no. Could you build it on Linux? Well, sure, if you had all the time and money and resources in the world. But Android is the only one, only platform that seems like primed for this change. Absolutely agreed on that. I mean, the, the only other equivalent, like you say, would be some sort of Linux environment. And I think from research that was done for this, the Google have been looking at implementing it on a, on a different system. So it wouldn't be Android, but perhaps uh, something that doesn't require the power to run the OS itself, which maybe would be useful on a smart screen or something or a small wearable device. But Android is, is really the way to go for handheld devices that use something like this. Yeah. And if you look at Google's work in particular, they're particularly invested in promoting a RTOS called Zephyr OS. They've been contributing a lot of development effort to it. They've also recently started to port the CHRE framework onto it so that enterprises or developers that are building embedded controllers and are seeking an operating system can use Zephyr OS and implement Google's CHRE framework. And who knows, we might see an, an uptick of chips with these embedded operating systems and interfacing with a high-level operating system like Android. Android is not competing with these RTOS. It's working in conjunction with them. And I think Android, as both David and Kieran mentioned, is a perfect platform for that. Yeah, what, what, one of the things that was mentioned by the guy doing the presentation, which um, can probably be linked at some point from this, but he mentioned that you could, in theory, have, because CHRE is a framework, you could, in theory, have modules that sit on top of it that can be shared between different devices. So you could have a module that you can just import that does all of your location tracking for you, which saves you a lot of time compared to implementing it yourself on a Linux-based system. So with something like that, we could really see like a, a huge uptake in this sort of use for, for a lot of small electronics because it removes a lot of work that they have to do to program these. All right. Well, I think this is probably going to be the most exhaustive resource on CHRE and Android Sensor Hubs um, online, at least audio resource. So, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. This is a really esoteric and honestly quite fascinating topic because, you know, the fusion of hardware and, you know, accessibility in terms of the operating system is really interesting and an area where Android has been uniquely equipped from the beginning to really capitalize pretty well in ways that legacy platforms or more gated ecosystems like Apple's just don't really have, even when Google does try to make it hard <laughs> to play with its toys. So, Kieran, um, where can folks find you and what you're working on and anything you'd like to plug? On the topic of this, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to plug tap tap because it's it, it took a good few months to get the CHRE stuff and the, and the update for it to a point that I was happy with. Unfortunately, it looks like Google made no fight in, in Android 13 when that comes out, but it'll still be accessible with root at least. 
But yeah, tap tap uh, is available on my GitHub, which is github.com slash Kevin Quinn. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Quinny898. So you're welcome to follow that if you want to follow with, with what I'm releasing. And Michelle and I are with Esper. And if you found this show interesting because you're trying to build an Android device, whether from the ground up or using a operating system distributed by an OEM, come talk to us. This is the kind of discussion we love to have because we want to know why you want to use Android and what you're trying to enable with it. It could be anything from a kiosk. It could be a smartwatch. It could be a television size display, really anything where you're trying to do something very specific with Android and probably in a either business or customer context where somebody's interacting with this machine to do a specific sort of thing. Esper is really good at this. We build our own distro of Android that is designed for these use cases that's really hardened, able to handle like a lot of, you know, a lot of updates, really, really easy to implement overall. And we work on a pretty wide variety of hardware platforms, including x86, if you'd like to talk to us about that. We're at esper.io, and this has been Android Bytes. Thank you for joining us, everyone, and we'll catch you next time.